You are listening to Circle of Hope's Sunday Meeting Podcast. This talk was given at 2007 Frankfurt Avenue. For more information, check out circleofhope.net or join us in person on Sunday evenings at 5 and 7 p.m. When we think about journeys and destinations, there's, there's often a both-and-ness a both happening with those ideas. You're familiar with this phrase, both-and? It's like the opposite of either-or, right? Um, and we, we say both and a lot around here, I think. And there's, there's something valuable about arriving somewhere, but there's something good also about the journey we take, both and. I like both ands. And the, the one I want to talk about today that, that might be a little bit ab- abstract, I hope it's not too abstract, is uh, liberation and reconciliation. Do you, you, you might not always think about these words period, but maybe also not in contrast with, in contrasting with one another. But I like this particular, uh, this particular idea because it helps answer a problem that we find in our faith. And specifically, it helps us answer a problem that we find in the Bible. Can you, you're okay with finding problems in the Bible, I I hope. But, but there, there's, there's a couple at least. And the one I want to work on today is this idea of a, uh, of, a, of a retributive God in the Old Testament. That's like the first part of the Bible. It's like the big part. And then the appendix is called the New Testament, and that's like the, the reconciling God. So you have these two ideas. Uh, you have uh, justice based in retribution, and you might say justice based in restoration. These are real broad strokes. But it's another story of a journey, a journey uh, from liberation to reconciliation. So we're thinking about these journeys this season, getting from here to there. Um, and so I want to talk to you about this one. Basically, you could say that God, that, uh, that, that there's a God that punishes our enemies in the Old Testament and one that calls us to love our uh, enemies in the, uh, in the New Testament, the Second Testament. And there's a tension there between liberation and reconciliation, between freedom and forgiveness. And that can be confusing. Reading the Bible can be a hard thing to do. And I, I, I want to touch it because I think that when we get to the hard parts, we might decide that reading the Bible or caring about the story the story of a people isn't that important to us. I, w- I want to drink, but I don't know how to stop talking and, ta- and t- taking one. Just letting you know what's happening with me. Yeah, or you have a camelback, you know, just like. So I, I think it's so hard to read the Bible that most Christians don't even do it. And I, I kind of blame that if you grew up in the church. Some of you uh, kind of grew up in the family business, um, and you might have had a condemning uh, upbringing that, that, that made you requ- um, that required you to read the Bible. Anyone have an experience like that? It, so you're required to read the Bible in order to learn that you don't need requirements to be saved. It's kind of a complicated, complicated idea. Like my mom recently bought, bought us a, a puzzle Bible book. So the kids could do the puzzle and read about like the stories in the Bible. And most of them are from the Old Testament and they're brutal. And so that I, I, uh, they looked at it for a second and then I hid it from them for eternity is how it's <laughs> happening. Now it's in the trunk of my car right now. Along with, for some other, she got me uh, one of those, uh, 
these things you got at Hobby Lobby that say something like wholesome that you put like on your mantle above your fireplace. And I looked at her and I said, there's no way, I'm not gonna hang this up. There's, it's not even, and she said, you know what, you should lie. You should say you are and then get rid of it. That's the nice thing to do. I was like, okay, okay mom. And I'm taking this puzzle Bible too. And so I, I don't want my kids to read the Bible really that much. Uh, I want them to know that God loves them, but they don't need to know about like the time he drowned humanity, like seven chapters in or something like that, you know. <laughs> and, and so you might have felt this need to read it and then this requirement turns you off. But I also think that even if you didn't grow up that way, reading the Bible um, is complicated, confusing, especially when we start venturing into the Old Testament. Us Anabaptist types, the rebaptizers, we're, we're, we're really in love with the nonviolence of Jesus. And so when we face the, 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 manifest, the, the manifestly violent God in the Old Testament, it can be hard to stomach, just like I was talking about. So much of our faith is about God's compassion and grace that despite our, wrong, despite our wrongdoing, that it can be hard to imagine a God that has any sort of wrath or retribution. But we have a God like that in the Bible. And that's like the big part of the Bible. And so what do we do with our cognitive dissonance? You know, I, I want to engage that a little bit. What do we do with the revenge and violence of God? And I'm nervous to say that because it requires some faith to get over that hump. You know, I want to clean it up for you. And not, I don't want to talk about God's vengeance and his wrath. You know, the, the God of the Old Testament is set to punish disobedience. But God regularly forestalls, forestalls God's judgment. So to appreciate this idea that a God would punish disobedient people, I think you have to be down with some sort of rules, and you have to have an enemy that God is saving you from. Those are two ideas that really help you understand the importance of this the importance of uh, this sort of uh, justice enacted this way. But if you think the rules oppress you rather than subject your enemy to ruin, this is hard. You know, you don't have to totally get that, of course, because I think we live in a new reality. But to begin to understand this idea, start with maybe start with appreciating rules and, 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 and then who is at the... Uh, who, who, who is punished as a result of not following them. And that, that could be hard for you to do because you might feel like an oppressor. You might feel like, the, like you're the one that lays the law down for some reason, and so it might be different. It might feel different to you. But we do live in a new reality where Jesus' kingdom is inaugurated and forgiveness and reconciliation are the, those are the rules of the land. So we're liberated from our oppression and then free to love one another. This radical reality that we're trying to bring to the world is really, is really why I'm a Christian, why I participate in Circle of Hope. Because we can forgive each other. We can be united. We can be reconciled. We can overcome our problems with God and with one another. But we don't want to create, we, we don't want to create an alternative um, we don't always want to create an alternative reconciling community. 
because we still like that rule of law. We still expect some sort of justice. You know, some of us are uh, concerned about making a better America, and that's the uh, expression of our uh, faith. You, and, and so, moved by the conviction that God gives us, we might be involved in a sort of activism that turns into statecraft, making a better apparatus, uh, because we want to make a better nation. We want a better emperor. We want a better president. I, I do want a better president. I, I don't have a problem saying that. And I'm, you know, I'm praying our Lord and Savior, Bob Mueller, can give it to us, right? There's, sometimes I get caught in this idea where I think, like, oh, this is, this is it. I really, hope that, I really hope this happens. We want political power because we still think whoever owns, the, whoever owns the guns saves the world. And so we're looking next week. Some of us are real, are real looking at what's going to happen in a few weeks from now. Are we going to turn the, turn the ship around? So that, this is difficult. That's why I keep going back to Anabaptism, why I keep going back to how we're doing, how I hope we're doing things in Circle of Hope. Because we have an alternative vision that only works, that only works when we're truly upending the systems of power that hold so many down. Our alternative community only exists in, in a place where its presence is actively taking down power structures. This new vision of Jesus, the extension of God's grace to the whole world, isn't just about forgiveness. It's about reconciliation and liberation, right? We're marrying these ideas. Here's how Paul put it to the Galatians. So th this is 10 verses or so. We'll get to it in a second. Briefly, the Galatians have this tension among the people, among the, among, among the, among the people that worship there. You have strict Jews that are requiring um, what seemed to be odd behavior for Gentiles. They're requiring circumcision uh, for all believers, the sign of the, the covenant that God has with the Jewish people. And then you have super spiritual Greeks that don't think you need to do very much at all to be saved. You know, you have people that want to follow the rules real strictly and people that don't think the rules apply to them. And you know people like this now. Paul is trying to show them the, the value of the tension here and wh where Jesus is taking us. And, and Paul is sometimes known for dismissing the law out of hand. Like, I think in this letter, he even like calls, he, he, he likens the law to shit, is probably the best way to translate his, uh, his, his annoyance with it. But here, we kind of see Paul taking a softer tone. When he says the law, he means the law of Moses here, the law of uh, the Old Testament, the uh, Ten Commandments might be the simplest way to look at it. Can someone out loud read this, read this long section here? So why was the law given? It was added because of offenses, until the descendant would come to whom the promise had been made. It was put in place through angels by the hand of a mediator. Now the mediator does not take one side, but God is one. So is the law against the promises of God? Absolutely not. If a law had been given that was able to give life, then righteousness would in fact have come from the law. For scripture locked of all things under sin, so that the promise based on faithfulness of Jesus Christ might be given to those who have faith. Before faith came, you were guarded under the law, locked up until faith that was coming would be revealed, so that the law became our custodian until Christ, so that we might be made righteous by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a custodian. 
You are all God's children through faith in Christ Jesus. All of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself in Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now if you belong to Christ, then indeed you are Abraham's descendants. You are heirs according to the promise. He's trying to capture, thanks Charles, he's trying to capture this problem where there are sides, there isn't a oneness, and, and he's moving them toward oneness in Jesus. He's capturing the paradox that we're talking about, well, the paradox between liberation and reconciliation, between justice and liberty. He's saying now that Jesus is among us, we no longer need the custodian. That's verse 25. We're no longer under a custodian that the law was. The law was like a, you could say like a groundskeeper that kept things in order. Played a role in, 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 in ruling us and how we live until the embodiment of the rule came, the ruler, Jesus. And, and, and that's the, that, that, that in, in a sense, is the tension that we're talking about. Can you withstand a little, a, a little word study? That's a rhetorical question because I'm probably going to do it anyway. But, you know, I'm, I'm preparing you a little bit. That word custodian translated, this is the Common English Bible, translated as a custodian here, uh, comes from this Greek word, pedagogos. Like pedagogue, you're familiar, like pedagogy, education, right? Those are some of the words that we get from this. And I want to settle, sit with this for a moment because there is, there has no shortage of controversy. Some people translate it as disciplinarian, others guardian. N.T. Wright calls it a, a babysitter. That's a weird one. Um, and then you can see some of the other ones. Tutor, teacher. I like custodian myself, but you come up with some wiggle room. What is the law doing, right? What's the occupation of the law? Is it just like a babysitter or is it a disciplinarian? Is it a guide, right? How we translate that really affects how we even see a, a principled faith at large, how we even approach the principles that God gave us. According to one source, the, 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 the pedagogue among the Greeks and the Romans uh, were trustworthy slaves who were charged with supervising the life and morals of boys belonging to a higher class. They couldn't st the boys couldn't step out of the house without them arriving before they reached the age of uh, manhood. And a slave accompanied the child to school and was a guardian and a guide or a custodian in that sense. Probably taught them a little bit about reading and writing, but mainly, mainly was that kind of duty and kind of had uh, influence of their own, of course. And so I don't know exactly how we would use that now and if we even have an idea like that. But Paul is telling us that the, that the law kind of uh, guided us and even loved us as it could along the way until Jesus came. And when Jesus came, he reconciled all of us, making no distinctions between us, right? In this, in this famous verse, we got to this point. This is the reconciling passage. Sometimes you just hear Galatians 3.28 by itself. There's a, there's, a, there's, there's a story behind it. There's neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female. For you're all one in Christ Jesus. Jesus is reconciling all of us together. And so we're, moved, we're moving uh, toward a community uh, that has commonality and mutuality as its characteristics. And I think that learning from each other, and this is hard to say these days, le learning from each other is more important than winning an argument. And, and I have to t tell myself this because I don't always believe it. You know, I'd rather get along than win most days, and 
And some days, personally, I'm uh, conciliatory to a fault, but other days, I really want to win. And so I'm, I, I work on this tension myself. But, you know, we say this in our Proverbs, being reconciled is more important than being right. That's a tough one to swallow. That's a hard idea to imagine. Here's, and one of the reasons it's hard is because the voice of the person articulating this proverb matters. You know, we're basically summarizing Galatians 3.28 here, and we're moving toward reconciliation and mutuality and mutual forgiveness because of how Jesus is reconciled with us. God is the author of reconciliation. The cross is kind of emblematic of this reconciliation. You might have heard this before. It has a vertical beam which reconciles us to God. It has a horizontal beam, reconciles us to each other, and, and is rooted in the earth too. So it's reconciling us with creation as well. The heart of the gospel is Jesus reconciling everything unto himself. But when we put a passage like this or an idea like this in the hands of the dominators, whomever they are, reconciliation can just mean submission to evil powers and power structures, and liberation can mean becoming those dominators. So I, I want to be careful about how, how we use a verse like this, how we use an idea like this. You know, someone who is dominating you could just say, no, it's better to be reconciled than right, so that's, that's how we're working this out. That's frustrating. That can be frustrating. So, and, and, and if, you, if you read like First Peter, for example, you can see this ultimate reconciliation with Jesus means that the powers of hell and death have no power over us, and because they've been conquered by Jesus on the cross, we don't have to fear them, right? That takes a lot of uh, uh, maturity to be able to withstand oppression and know that Jesus has the victory or something. So, yeah, when we're not saved, we beg and, and, and receive institutional rights. And if the oppressors never stop oppressing us, we won't have a chance for peace. There's a problem that comes from that. If the, uh, if the oppressor is the one requesting the reconciliation in order to quiet us down, the oppressed, that's a problem. If reconciliation just means no simmer down, don't say anything. Don't, no one wants a, a, a squeaky wheel, right? Stay quiet. That's a, that's, that's, you know, reconciliation can just become like a political quietism, right? You can, you can feel that passive aggressive movement sometimes, especially in, in the church. Or the oppressors might assuage their guilt that way too. And so we got big problems. The Christian rule of forgiveness and reconciliation can be used to further perpetuate sin in the world. Nietzsche called uh, Christianity, uh, Christian forgiveness, something for the weak. And I, I think that his main concern was uh, collecting power for the sake of assigning meaning, but that might be too philosophical for my purpose here. His influence resulted in the kind of uh, postmodern revolution that gave the dominated the ability to dominate back. Right? What followed Nietzsche was, um, hey, a world where um, European intellectuals didn't dominate everything. Something good came of that. And when, when, when we put it um, into the world's hands, the cycle of violence and counterviolence and oppression keeps going around and around. The idea, of course, for those of us suffering in this time and place is hard to imagine. If you live right now, it's hard to imagine you ever becoming a dominator. And so even as you seek liberation and as you seek power, it's mind-boggling to imagine a scenario where you would have enough to, to in fact, perpetuate the problems at hand. 
Does that make sense? The ruling moral elite has cemented its grip on power so resolutely that any idea of change seems impossible. We're never going to get there anyway. We're never going to be that bad. So we fight for justice and for liberation because the possibility of ever becoming the dominator is so beyond the pale that we never, that we, that we never consider what we might do might result in oppression. We're never even ha we, don't, we don't have the idea that we would be armed with such power to actually hurt somebody. It's a complicated problem. So this vision I described earlier can be suited for established people who are in power. The alternative is easy to create if we don't get resistance from the state and haven't experienced oppression. It's really easy to not engage in political reform, for, for lack of a better term, if the status quo is fine for you. Right? You can be a real, a, a real politically quiet Anabaptists. You don't even have to vote because, you know, what's the difference? You know, I'm still, still doing pretty good, right? There's something about that, that that makes me uncomfortable. But often, people who are not in power need more liberation than we can express as a private club. All alternative might just be a gated community if we're not careful. And as you see people that move into this non-violent, resistant community around the country, they all kind of look similar. There's a reason for that. You know, an unjust gospel is a fake one. One that doesn't reconcile is not good news either. So liberation, reconciliation, justice, and forgiveness can easily be opposed to one another. And academics like to pin these ideas against, against one another. And, and sometimes you see this between like liberationists and pacifists, and sometimes it's fun to debate it, but I think it's better to try to work together. How are we gonna weave these things together? Because we're neither one thing nor another. We probably don't wanna monopolize the market on truth, but Jesus is showing us another way. Here's a, here's a way to tell the story. The nation of Israel in the Old Testament is oppressed by the Egyptians and God liberates the people from their Egyptian oppressors, promises them a place to call home. Jesus extends that. Jesus extends that liberation to all people. And it's, a, it's not a new organized power structure or political apparatus. It's more than that. This kind of attitude, one of inclusion and reconciliation, leads Jesus to death. Not only was his subversion seen as sedition or treason by the Romans, it was also seen as treason by his own people, and so he weeps for them even as they reject his own teachings. He is nailed and hanged to the cross. Jesus looked in the eyes of the Roman killers and oppressors, the people that have oppressed his own people, and asked God to forgive them. And in his death, Jesus conquers the ultimate consequence for our rebellion, death itself. And so there's freedom from death. True justice and true liberation can follow. We're free from death, free to receive forgiveness, and have a chance at reconciliation, despite our mistakes, despite our sins. It's not the state, the oppressor, the chief social agent that offers us or authors this path for us towards liberation and reconciliation, but it's God, who became like us, incarnate, in order to reconcile all things unto himself. Our community can be an expression of that reconciliation and that liberation. We can hold both of them in our hands, and we should. People might find unity and freedom right here, right in our cells, right in our meetings. They might uh, be freed from what oppresses them and then invited to love their enemy too, thereby liberating their enemy from his or her own captivity.
The dominators and the oppressors need to be liberated from, from the curse that's on them, too. So maybe we can build something like that together. I actually think the radical way that we're set up in Circle of Hope makes it uh, possible for us to express um, this liberation and reconciliation. Thanks for listening to Circle of Hope's Sunday Meeting Podcast. If you want to talk about it or get connected to a cell, you can find one under our Connect drop-down at circleofhope.net.